great to be here this morning. I'm excited to be able to share with you. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. You can go ahead and get there, hold your place. We will get there, I promise, but we've got some work to do before we get there. The main thing I want you to hear this morning is that we were not designed nor created to live this life alone. Simply put, I need you and you need me. We need each other to help each other unpack what it means to know who God is, what the mission of God is, and what it means to give God glory in everything we say and we do. We were designed and we were created for each other, for the mission of God, to bring fame to his great name. We were designed to be connected. And uh, I think that's an important aspect of our church as we look and see that, hey, in a very short time, maybe shorter than we had planned, we're going to have our own building. We're going to have a building that's on the corner of a pretty important street in the life of Cary. And we're going to open up a building and people are going to come. So the question we have to ask is how do we stay connected with one another and making sure that we do what God has called us to do and we're going to be who God's called us to be. If you will, just help me uh, entertain you just a little bit about looking at people we all know through cartoons, TV, and movie and help you to see the importance of how they were connected. Are you ready? I need some help. Okay, see Batman had, oh, you are good. And Beauty had the, oh my goodness, and for you nerds that love Star Wars, Han Solo had Chewie, Chewbacca, and then you had C-3PO had R2-D2, may the force be with you, and Bo Duke had Luke Duke and Jesse and Frodo had Sam and Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway had Wilson the volleyball. Because we all need relationships, we're designed for that. We're designed to depend upon each other and to, and to encourage one another. The Flintstones had the Rubbles, and Alice had the Bradys, the Lone Ranger had Tonto, and on Cinco de Mayo, we will bring it back because Jack Bauer has Chloe. Can I get an amen? <laughs> that is what I'm talking about. Live another day, counterterrorism is going to be defeated because Jack and Chloe have a mission. Cinco de Mayo, don't forget that day, because that's the day they come back. On the way to church this morning, my boys are sitting in the back seat. My boys are sitting in the back seat and um, they're talking about all the spring break, they're talking about friends they're going to be hanging out with, and it just made a great, great sort of illustration to illustrate what we're talking about, that we are created for each other. Jake goes, okay, let me just tell you what's going to happen. Today, I'm going to Jeremiah's birthday party. And as soon as I get home, it's life group time. And tomorrow, Michael is coming over from church. You know him, Luke. And then on Tuesday, we're going to Chuck E. Cheese with Andrew Langdon. That is awesome. And I'm sitting here going, we need to be connected to each other because we were designed for that. Simple illustrations from life and TV and all that kind of stuff that help us remember and to be reminded that we were created to be together. The Bible is very clear that we are to be connected to Christ first and be connected to each other so that, as Hebrews says, we can stir each other up with love and good deeds. It's very important that we see that. It, we at Northwest consider belonging a really key component for our, um, for our existence. Why we exist and what are we here to do? We want you to grow in Christ. We want you to serve Christ. We want to reach out to other people. But first and foremost, we want you to belong and connect. Belong first to Christ 
and belong to each other and help us all be spur each other up for love and good deeds, as I said. Genesis chapter two, verse 18 says this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Right from the very get-go, man was complete in and of Christ. But God the Father said it wasn't good for him to be alone because we have relationships together to further his kingdom for people to know about who he is. The UCLA School of Medicine reports this. This is what they said. The idea is that we are born to form attachments, that our brains are physically wired to develop in tandem with another's through emotional communication beginning before words are even spoken. But you see, here's a problem. Here's the problem that what's happened in our culture over time is that they have tried to make things a little bit more convenient for us. In an effort to make things more convenient for us, they have created what's called, I believe, a theology of isolation. And what I mean is that there have been opportunities that we all really enjoy. For instance, who in the world does not like to shop online? I mean, really, you know, you get to shop online. You, okay, maybe you like to go to the store. Those of you that raise your hand, I see who you are, okay? So here, here are some people, you, know, you, you go to the computer, you sit in your, your, your room, you go to the desk, you, wherever you are, you get to look at what it is, you get to buy it, and man, it's right there on your doorstep. My wife is not a mall shopper. She loves that aspect. What's happened here is that we have taken away the relationship that we have with people. You used to go to the mall with people, look that clerk in the eye, you buy it, you have a conversation, and then you move on your way. You have conversation. But what's happening is that I, I believe there's a theology of isolation that, hey, you don't need people to live life. Just be disenfranchised from life. Just worry about yourself. Esteem, esteem yourself better than others as opposed to what the text says to esteem others better than yourself. And so we have the banking industry too. Remember, you, you know, when, when several years ago you would get your paycheck, you would take your paycheck, you would go to the bank, you would either go to the drive-thru, you would go to the counter, you would have a conversation with, the lady I had a conversation with was Keisha. She was the bank. I had a conversation with her. I knew how her kids were. She knew how my kids were. Matter of fact, when I was there, she gave out lollipops. And if you had a dog, she'd give out a bone, but I don't have a dog, okay? Because I don't like dogs, and you know that. And don't judge me. So this is my sermon, okay? All right. So here's what happens. You get lollipops. You get lollipops. And so now what's taking place is you get your paycheck. You don't even get your paycheck. It's directly deposited. You don't have anybody to talk to. And if you get a check that's written to you, there's some people that still write checks, you take a picture of it and it's automatically deposited into your account, right? So there's no relationship with that person. You go to the grocery store. You go to the grocery store, man, you could still go to the grocery store to buy groceries, but you don't have to talk to a soul because you can go into the line and you can check yourself out, which really sounds really funny that I just said that, okay? But you know what I mean. You can go to the self-checkout line. You can go, you go to the self-checkout line and you can go to that line, you can take your groceries, you can zip them through, beep, beep, and then you put them in the bag yourself and you walk out and you haven't talked to anyone. And so the subtle conveniences that, are, that we enjoy have really created what happens, what I believe is this isolation aspect where we don't really need to talk to people. As a matter of fact, some of the houses that are being built today have garages in the back of the house. So what happens, you drive to the back of the house, put the garage door, push the button, go into the garage, push the button, and it closes. There's no getting out of the car in front of the house and walking in. Because, in, in, and I would even ask this question, how many of you know your neighbors and know them well? 
Because what happens, sometimes we work 60, 70 hours a week and then all of a sudden we've got practices to go to and what we do is we just hang out with our families and we're not connected to other people. But here is the issue. Here is the issue. We've got to stay connected to each other. Remember when I went to college, another example, when I went to college, this is what you did. You went to class sometimes. <laughs> okay, I convicted. I, 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 I admit, sometimes I didn't go to class. But sometimes you went to class. I remember a class that I had. It was a religion class by Dr. Logan Carson. Dr. They called him the wheel. And Dr. Logan Carson is blind, okay? And he's one of the most brilliant men I've ever had, ever sat under in my entire life. But here's what happened in my class. See, what you used to do is not what you do now because now you can go and take everything online, not go to class. But when I went to class, this is what happened. I was sitting in class and Dr. Logan Carson had intro to the New Testament. And there's this guy that came every single day to class with a backpack with no books but a pillow in it. So Dr. Logan Carson is blind, right? And so he would bring his backpack, unzip it, pull out his pillow, lay it on his desk, and he would sleep the entire class. And this is when I, this is when I want to tell you. This is when you know you are dialed into the Lord. Because Dr. Carson, he held his Bible just like this. It was Braille. And he would read it like this, and he would rock back and forth. So like this, and he'd preach like nobody's business. And he would just rock back and forth, and he would go like this, and so he's preaching one day, and he says, ah, uh, Mr. Bashirs, put your pillow away and pay attention. How in the world did he know that? How did he know that? So here's, here's what I'm trying to share with you right now is that subtly what's happened is that we've got these great conveniences that are at our fingertips that all of us enjoy. We can go to the gas station, pump, pay at the pump, get in the car, and go. We don't, it doesn't slow down the process, but in the midst of being convenient and speeding up the process, what's happened is we've lost some relationships, and here's what's really important. The church cannot afford to do just that. And at the position that we are in as a church, getting ready to go into a building program, it is incredibly important that we make sure that as we get bigger, we get smaller. That as we get bigger, we must continue to get smaller. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Because you need me and I need you. Here's a quote I want to read you from The Connecting Church written by Randy Frazee. He says this. More and more folks, young and old, rely almost exclusively on the technology of email. Texting Twitter and Facebook. I would add Instagram in there. For their relationships. Yet you don't have to take a class in sociology to know that won't cut it. You don't have to go to seminary to know this is no substitute for the way God designed us to live. We were wired to require real eye-to-eye -eye contact. We were created for real hugs. Virtual condolences will never match the power of simply being there when a friend is bruised in a relationship or broken by an unexpected announcement. So here's what happens. The conveniences that we all enjoy that say you don't need each other, just stick to your family, stick to your close group. How in the world does the church continue to bring before our people? How do we continue to make sure that you are connected to the gospel, that we are connected to each other, that God is getting the great fame of his name that he deserves? How, how is it that we continue as we get bigger to get smaller? I think Jesus demonstrated at least a strategy. Now, we're going to Hebrews in just a minute, but if we take a look at what Jesus modeled, I think that that was modeled through a lot of people throughout the rest of the time. Jesus did not go and address the masses only. 
Jesus took a small group of people, 12 to be exact, he created this small group and he created them and he said, okay, I'm gonna pour my life into you. I'm gonna have one-on-one conversations with you. I'm gonna rebuke you when you fall asleep. And I'm gonna challenge you to live and do life together. And so in in Mark chapter one, verse 16, it says this, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew. Listen, he saw them. He noticed what was going on. He saw a great need in their life. And he looked and it says, he saw Simon casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to him, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Basically what he's doing to a bunch of guys who were sinners. He's like, you follow me and I'm gonna make you something you're not. But the way I'm gonna make you something you're not is I'm gonna ask you to be a part of this little small group because when you're a part of this little small group, you'll be more effective in the big group. Because as we get bigger, we must work on getting smaller. The the New Testament church, the early church, adopted the same philosophy that that Jesus did. If you look in and you went through, I'm gonna call out some text. You can either write these down or just, you don't have to flip there. But in, in Acts chapter one, verse five, the church was said that it had 120 people. The early church had 120 people. Just 120 people. Then in Acts 2, 41, we realize that 3,000 of them, 3,000 people were added in one day. One day. Now that is an incredibly large growth curve, right? That's exponential growth times 10. Then in Acts 2, 47, it says people were being added day by day. And let's just picture that. There's 365 days in a year. Let's just picture that there's one person per day. 365 people per day in your church, that is exponential growth in and of itself. So what's going on? The church is getting so much bigger. The early church is getting so much bigger. Then we come down to Acts chapter five, verse five, and it says 5,000 men, 5,000 men, not including the the women and the children, but 5,000 men were added that day. And in Acts chapter six, verse seven, it says the number multiplied. It didn't add, it multiplied greatly. So what was going on? They were getting so much bigger and they were getting bigger faster. But here's what it says in Acts 5, 42. And every day in the temple and from, here it is, house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. In Acts chapter 20, verse 20, John Piper calls this, the 2020 principle of the church. And it says this, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. So what did the, what did the early church do? As they got bigger, they got smaller. And as they got smaller, they got more effective in the larger plan. So what are we gonna do about that? What is Northwest Community Church gonna do that? Because here's what takes place. When you're a church like us, I'm gonna brag on what we do because we teach the Bible in an unapologetic and bold way. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And the Bible says that God's word will not return void. And so what is going to happen is that people will come to the church as they have been coming to the church. I met two guests this morning in the first hour, just two, but there were more. And once we open a building and we get to be on that corner, it's gonna be incredibly imperative that as we get bigger, we get smaller and we continue to do what I believe we do best and that is connect with people. Connect on the large scale and connect on the small scale, but, but how are we gonna do that? 
What is the best way for us as a church to do that? And so really to answer that question, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 13, one through six. As I go through these six exhortations from the text, we've got six of them that we're gonna work through. I want you to ask yourself the question, after I say each one, how can these exhortations most likely be lived out in your life at Northwest Community Church? So we cover one, you ask yourself the question, how does that, what does that look like? How, what is the greatest manifestation of that exhortation that I'm supposed to live out? You see, the book of Hebrews is a lot like a lot of books. Ephesians is the same way. The first part of the book talks about doctrine, and then it talks about your duty, and then it talks about what you do. How are you going to live your practice of how you're going to live out what you've already uncovered? And Hebrews is really a lot like the same way. It's, it's doctrine. In, in chapter 10, we learn that the veil has been torn, and Jesus is the lamb that was slain without spot or blemish, and there is no reason, there is no reason to sacrifice a goat. You can, you can let him leave the building. Okay, because Jesus is the one that was slain once and for all. We go to chapter 10 verses, chapter 10 verses 24 through 25 in Hebrews and it says, do not neglect the assembling of the brothers. I'll just be very frank. In the Greek, it means go to church consistently. Amen? It means be involved, go to church. Then he comes in and he says, here are some things that I want your life to be about. Here's some exhortations that I want your life to be about. And again, the question that I have as we start is, how are they displayed in the life of us calling Northwest Community Church our home? So let's go to the first one. Hebrews chapter 13, verse one, it says this, let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. The word that he used for love is, or excuse me, the word that he used this type of love, brotherly love, is the word that we get phileo, which is brotherly love. There's three different kinds of love. Some would disagree with that, but there's eros love, romantic love. There's phileo love, brotherly love. There's agape love, which is unconditional love, okay? This type of love that he's referring to right here is the type of love that you have a fellow believer in Jesus. It's really cool that the word phileo means tender and affectionate, but the word adelphus, which is the second part of the word, means brother, kinsman from the same womb. So as I relate to you, I'm not to treat you as someone who is, has a different mother and father, but I'm to treat you as someone that, man, we came from the same place. I had a friend, he's from Long Island, New York, and every time he would see me, he would say, Matty Rice, and he had this real strong Long Island accent. And he said, you're my brother from another mother. That's what he would say. He'd say, you're my brother from another mother. Give me a big bro hug. And so when I read this text, I'm no man, I'm your brother from the same mother. You know what I'm saying? That's what I'm talking about here because that's who we are. I'm the brother. We're together. We're one and together. He's talking about, hey, that we're from the same womb. We're together in this. There's a brotherly affection that comes up that is displayed. And that's the kind of love that I want you to have for each other. I want you to see yourselves as someone that, hey, you came from the same womb. Love each other that way. Look at each other that way. He goes on to say in verse two, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I think what he's talking about here is be careful not to miss out on a chance to be a blessing and be blessed. If you had the opportunity, if you had the opportunity to sit in front of an angel which I believe there are angels out there 
Okay, I'm, I'm a strong believer in that. And at certain times, you have the opportunity to use grace and to use wisdom and to use the wisdom that God would give you to talk to someone that you don't know or to see a stranger. I, I have a habit of picking up hitchhikers on the road without my family, okay? Now, I'm not saying I've entertained angels, but I've had great conversations and great opportunity to witness to people about the greatest message in the world by picking those guys up. But what I really want you to see is I want you to see that there is an opportunity that is before us as believers to be able to connect to people that don't look like us, that aren't like us, that in essence, that they are strangers. But at the same time, we have an opportunity to be a blessing to them, but at the same time, they have an opportunity to be a blessing to us. How many times have you reached out to someone you did not know and you thought you were doing a great job, but at the same time, it came back that, man, you were more blessed than they were in doing just that. There's an opportunity for us to be able to be around people. And sometimes, sometimes we miss out on a blessing when we say no. So use great wisdom. I think the text is saying use great wisdom to make sure that you entertain people that you know and that you don't know. The text goes on in verse three. Look at what it says in verse three. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison from them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. I think what he's asking us to do is he said, I want you to remember the grace that's been extended to you and I want you to give grace to those that have made bad choices. Because he's talking about those. He said, remember those who are in prison. They're in prison because they made a bad choice. You know, maybe everybody in here in our lives, we've made bad choices before. Maybe your bad choice didn't land you in prison, but for some of them, it has landed them in prison. And what he's saying is, is I don't want you to judge them. I want you to give them grace. I want you to extend grace to them because you are one bad decision away from having some really bad circumstances in your life. And I want to encourage you to give that grace that's been extended to you. Be reminded that there are people who have had, who made bad decisions, but don't forget that because of the grace that I've extended to you and the, and the will that I have for your life, you're not where you could be outside of me. And don't look with judgmental eyes to see that they're in a bad place because of them. Love on them, care for them, connect with them, reach out to them. Verse four says this, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. I think what he's saying is I want you to fight for your marriage and the protection of your marriage. Marriage is to be a beautiful picture of the gospel. That is really what it's supposed to be. Why? Because marriage has at its core agape love, un unconditional love. At its core, it has forgiveness, unconditional forgiveness, daily forgiveness, right? And, and he's saying, I want your marriage to be held in honor because here's what was happening. There was this idea at the time that celibacy was the highest honor. If you were married, you were less Christian than the ones that were. The writer comes in here and says, hey, I want marriage to be held in honor among all. It is a great institution created by God and for God. I want you to protect that relationship. When Christians are immoral, the immediate consequences may even be worse because the testimony of the gospel is polluted. In verse five, look at verse five. Verse five says this. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. I think the admonition and the exhortation is this. Be content 
for what you have, not what you don't. I always talk to my kids, dad, I want this, dad, I want this, dad, I want this. I'm like, guys, I want you to be grateful for what you have, not what you don't. We say that before we get into the store and after we leave the store. Be grateful for what you have, not what you don't. And here's what he's saying is, is I don't want, I want to keep you from the love of money. You need money. You need to make money. You need money to do what you're supposed to do and provide for your family. But I don't want you to see that as the main thing because the gospel is the main thing. That's the main thing. I know that some of us have gotten into hard times and we look at it and we say, well, man, what in the world? If I just had this, my brother's like, if I just had, if I just had this much money, man, my problems would be solved. And I'm like, no, Will, you've got everything you need. You've got a loving God who loves you, who cares for you, and he is the one that provides your contentment. Trust him, believe in him, and fight for that and against the belief that if you just had more money, then you would be in a better position. And I think what he's asking us to do is I want you to understand that our, your contentment comes only from him and not our stuff. And in verse six, it says this. Verse six, he says, For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? I believe what he's talking about here is he wants the promises of God to birth in us a holy confidence, a bold confidence in his sovereignty. Let me say it again. I think what he's doing is he's asking those promises of God to be birthed in us, that it would be, that would lead us to an absolute sold out and bold confidence in God's absolute sovereignty. Because here's what he does. I will never leave you nor forsake you is probably the most quoted promise of God by anybody going through a very difficult situation. And, and he comes with that statement, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. And that promise right there resonates with the many other promises in the Bible that God gives us. And he's like, what I want you to do is I want you to remember those promises. And when you remember those promises, you're gonna stand up in boldness because of God's sovereignty and say, hey, what can man do to me? The Lord is my helper, it's personal. But you might be asking the question, which I hope you still are, is how is that displayed in the issue of being connected and avoiding isolationism? How does that do that? I believe that the exhortations that we just covered right now, I believe that they are basically lived out through a life group. I believe that here, life groups are not the end all that be all. They are not the actual center of our church. Jesus is the center of our church. We gather for the fame of his name and only his name. We are on mission with God. But in order for us to get, in order for us really to continually to focus and connect with people, as we get bigger, we must get smaller. And when we take a look at, when we take a look at brotherly love and how we treat each other as the same from the same womb, when we do that, how is that best lived out? How is that best defined? I believe it's best defined, best fleshed out through the ministry of a life group. A life group is anywhere from six to 12 people, sometimes fewer, sometimes more, here at Northwest Community Church that we have meet, that meet throughout the whole entire week. Because like I said, Jesus demonstrated, the early church demonstrated that as we get bigger, we must continue to fight and get smaller. And if you wanna be connected to the mission of God, you wanna be connected to God himself, you wanna be connected to each other so that I can encourage your kids, you can encourage my kids, it's important that we take this strategy of life groups and helps us remember to stay connected to each other because at the end of the day, you need me and I need you. We need each other. We were designed for it. We were created for it. 
If we're gonna reach out to strangers and understand that hey, there's other people that don't believe or think the same way we do, man, let's reach out to them. If there's a reminder of the grace that's been given us and the grace that we can give to other people, the life group is a place where that can be manifest. There's the, the purity of your marriage. I want the people in my life group to help me fight for my marriage. And I wanna help them fight for their marriage, for the integrity of their marriage. And then there's contentment. I don't wanna be swayed by money. I don't wanna be swayed by that. I don't want that to be the center of everything that we do. I want the gospel to be the center of everything that we do. And in that life group setting, we're reminded over what really completes us and where our contentment truly is. And what about the promises of God? There are so many promises of God in the scripture. I'll never leave you for, nor forsake you. And it is in that life group setting that you are reminded and encouraged by those promises of God that he's not gonna leave you, he's not gonna forsake you so that you can stand up confidently and say, the Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? And I believe it's in the confines of that group. You wanna be connected? You wanna be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves? An application step for you, if you're not, is to be involved in a life group. If you are in a life group, here's my encouragement to you. Take a look at what we just talked about this morning, these six exhortations. Make sure that you are using them to spur other people in your group on. And be intentional about inviting people to your group so that they can now be connected like you're connected. There's a kiosk in the back that's gonna help you get connected. But better than the kiosk is a great testimony of what it means to be connected. And I want you to watch this story. We just moved to the Raleigh-Durham area about six months ago. You know, for us, we're, we're kind of outgoing people. Julie probably more so than me. Um, but um, this was a new experience for us. We had moved really just two times prior in our 24 years of marriage. And in both of those cases, um, we knew people where we were going. And um, in this case, we knew nobody. It was a quick move. Found out in May, um, moved in August. In between that time, our oldest daughter got married. And so that was a big transition in and of itself. Uh, our second daughter, Olivia, uh, was staying where we were to go to college. So we kind of came with half our family. We came from a place that was very small. My girls went to a school that, from kindergarten through 12th grade, was about 125 kids total. So bringing them here, going to Panther Creek and Mills Park, was very overwhelming. But we knew that one of the most important things for our family was to get involved in a church as soon as possible. We visited several places. Some of them had been friendly, some of them had not. But even the friendly ones, nobody made any effort to connect outside of that Sunday morning. Hello. And we really wanted more. We, we came from a place where it was family. There was a small, small community, and we were family with each other. So we were craving that connection. I think one of the coolest things actually was the fact that we, we really first became acquainted with the church at a Friday night football game. And I found out the pastor, you know, Pastor Eisner, was down as a ball boy on the field. And so we were just really impressed with, with that right out of the gate because we thought, wow, this is the kind of church we want to be part of, integrated into the community. 
And so then we came and visited the church. It was a big church and the nature of two services and so forth. You, you can kind of come here and if you just come to the church service um, and you, you kind of come in and leave, uh, you don't have an opportunity to connect, I think, sometimes. And so um, for us, the life group was just key. So I think it was, it was either the first or second time we visited. Matt talked to us about life groups and said, you know, one of the best ways to get connected is through a life group. And we were actually pretty eager to do that. And we wanted to make friends and, you know, particularly for our girls and, and for us as well. So um, we went to a life group. And, and really, I think the first time we went for us, we connected. It's gotta be intentional. Um, you have, nobody has time right? Everybody's busy with their own lives. And yet, my, our life group in particular, people intentionally called me and asked me to lunch, intentionally called Carrie and asked him to go to coffee in the morning, and made a point to get to know us. At the same time, I think we were very willing to and eager to help and do what we could to get involved. So both sides have to be intentional on that, but it sure does help when um, the people who are comfortable and in their comfort zone reach out, which we very much felt here at Northwest. That's what we want. We want to help you connect because the, the task at hand is a, an incredible opportunity. There are two countries that were decimated by the issue of communism. But one, theologically, has exploded and one has stalled. The city, the city of Russia, communism came in and see, the evangelical community in the country of Russia was all based on the large group meeting and that's it. And when communism just overtook the area and suppressed the issue of the gospel in the large group meeting, they had no strategy to turn to. But however, China, it was much different. And I went there and I got to see it. And I went over there in 2005 and got to sit down with a pastor who was a geology professor who gave that up and went underground to teach a small group of people the message of Jesus and raise up other pastors that would go all over the place. Because see, China's strategy was, as they were bigger and they were not allowed to say certain things, they got smaller in the underground church movement. They discipled people, they did life together, and they sent each other out. Matter of fact, they didn't really send each other out because they deployed each other out because of the greatest message in the world. If we are gonna to continue to connect with one another, we have to think of a strategy, and that strategy is life groups. It's a way for us, as we get bigger, to get smaller so that we can be more effective in doing what God's called us to do. It's all tied in to the reason we exist, and that is to bring fame to his name. I love you guys. I'm so grateful to be here. I'm gonna go ahead and pray with us right now. God, I thank you for life groups, and I thank you for the strategy of life groups. I thank you that life groups are really not the center of everything, you are the center of everything. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to have people who teach on a daily basis, weekly basis, the message of the gospel, live life together, encourage marriages, help us to extend grace, 
Help us to love each other in a brotherly way. Help us to fight to remember the promises of God. Help us to trust and confidently, boldly trust in your, in your sovereignty. And I thank you for that strategy that's here that we can take advantage of. And I pray, God, that you'd help us as a church to continually help people to get connected to each other, to the gospel, to you, and to the great mission that we're here for. I thank you that we can sing about that. I thank you that we can teach about that. And I thank you that we can talk about that. I love you, God. I'm thankful for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.